Fine. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Put my stuff away. Well, great to see you guys this morning as always and just to be able to worship the Lord with you. Uh, it's the first Sunday of the month, and so as such, we will have a time of communion towards the close of our service. And uh, thank you, Josh, for the announcements. Uh, you noticed the month of May is kind of filled with some fun events, some fun fellowship events, and we hope that you can join us for each of those. That's appropriate. If you have more questions about some of the events, especially the Ishinomaki trip and the women's bus fellowship event, uh, they have tables downstairs. They, uh, there should be somebody there to uh, answer your questions. Uh, there are small fees associated with, with each of those, um, but we can hopefully get you the information that you need. And I'm excited for today uh, for various reasons, beach baptisms later on. Uh, it is the beginning of Golden Week, and so traffic will probably be a little heavier than usual on top of a Sunday, uh, which is already usually a, a busy traffic day. And so as Josh mentioned, if you can try to get out there a little earlier, that would be helpful. Um, they, they have limited parking spots. Sometimes people will park at the Sane. I, I'll just say this. If you do that, just you know, go buy something from the Sane. So you know, go, go get something, be a, a customer there, and then you can park in the parking lot, okay? Uh, but following our beach baptisms, um, just kind of impromptu with the Gerbers who are going to be PCSing, and they've been part of our leadership team for the last year and a half, and uh, such a gift to us here at the church. We're going to be joining at the RICOM Mall on the third floor at the food court, if you're familiar with it, just way in the back in the far left corner, uh, just as a way to say, hey, we love you, Gerbers. Uh, we're going to pray you back to Oki and Lawson's, uh, but uh, just to have kind of a fun dinner fellowship. And so that's going to be happening probably around 6 o'clock. So we're going to do the baptisms, hopefully, you know, get dried off, change your clothes, and head out to the mall. So uh, that's happening tonight as well. And you're all invited uh, as far as that's concerned. And then uh, I'm excited because we're starting a new series through the book of James today. And I'm, so I'm blessed that you're here. And uh, if you have a Bible, let's just get to it. We're going to turn to the book of James. If you've been with us through the, our journey in Hebrews, which I think most of you have been, it's just the next book over. If you need to borrow a Bible, we'll be happy to let you borrow one. You just have to raise your hand high in the air so Don can see you and get you a Bible. If you're still a little bit lost of, of where it is, if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation, and just make, make your way backwards, there's Jude, uh, there's the, the Johns, and then there's the Peters, and then you get to James. Okay, so we're in the book of James. And for our time of study, thank you, Don, today, since we are starting a, a new book, uh, we will, by way of introduction, spend, spend some time on the background of this particular letter, and we'll step into the doorway of the book of James, really just at verse 1. We are having communion, as I mentioned, towards the close of our, our service today, and as I had promised you last week to do my best to finish on time, and so that's my aim. And uh, you know, with, with God, all things are possible. That's what the Bible says. Right? So James chapter 1, verse 1, uh, introduction to James, just simple, that's our title. If you're there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And you won't have to stand very long. The Spirit inspires James. He writes, introduces himself. He says, James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. That's where we'll pause. Greetings. Father, we thank you for the day. Lord, we know that the Bible describes you as the potter. We are the clay. We want to yield ourselves to you, that you would mold and shape and, and have your way. Lord, as you fashion us into really the image of your Son. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in us. As Peter describes us as living stones being built together into the spiritual house. We're called a royal priesthood, called your children. Father, we thank you for all these wonderful um, symbols and imagery that describe our relationship with you and to you. And Father, we, we pray now as we start this new book that you would speak to our hearts, that we'd get a great foundation of James to just build upon in the coming weeks. And I thank you for everybody here, for everybody that's watching online. May you be glorified. May we be edified. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. All right, take a moment, say hello to somebody, and then you may have a seat. Uh, as, as much as I love finishing a good book and the sense of accomplishment that that brings with it, I also love starting a new book. And that is true of, of non-biblical books, uh, but especially of the books of the Bible. And as we come to the book of James, I'm excited. Even for you, I imagine you've read it before, you've studied before, perhaps you've heard it taught before. But the uniqueness of Scripture in itself is it testifies of itself that it's alive, it's living. Uh, God breathed it. And so there are times where we can read and reread and come back to something that we have read before, heard before, studied before, and yet there's still something there very fresh. It's encouraging, it's inspiring, it's convicting, all of those things as the Spirit brings it forth. And I have no doubts that the book of James will deliver. It will bring all of those things to us as well. With that, though, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on some background of this book. If you're not familiar, if you don't have one of those study Bibles that does it for you, and so just bear with me some background. So first, we just want to consider the, the time of which James writes. And historians and Bible scholars estimate that it's around 46 to 49 AD. So what that essentially means for us is it's an early letter, and some would even say it's the earliest, or it's the first letter of the, the New Testament writings. Later, we're going to note his audience, and uh, it's apparent from who he is addressing in other references that James is mostly speaking to Jewish Christians who are living outside of Jerusalem and outside of Israel. We gather from his letter as well that uh, the church is a young church. It's the early church. The gospel is beginning to go out, uh, but it's, um, you know, it's still in its kind of the earlier um, stages, if I can call it that. Uh, 
And so he refers to their place of assembly, or excuse me, their place of meeting as an assembly, which is translated in other places as synagogue. Uh, and, and the entire letter really has Jewish expressions and references. What also is apparent from the letter is that these particular Jewish believers, like, like the letter to the Hebrews, that they were going through some, some rough stuff, some big bumps uh, in their lives as they were following the Lord. And there are these events that were happening around them and to them that seem to have challenged their faith in Jesus Christ. So James writes to them concerned. Concerned that they may sway or succumb to bitterness, impatience, that perhaps they will become greatly disappointed in unmet expectations, tempted by materialism, or even just to drift into a type of spiritual apathy. And really those are all temptations that we face today too as we follow the Lord. You know, what happens to us? What happens in your heart and your mind when things don't go the way that you hoped? Or things don't play out the way that you planned? And so James will give us some great instruction on that. How do we respond to that? What's going on in that? So the time of James, it's an early letter. The theme of James is really just what we entitled our series. It's, it's faith. It's faith that works. You know, some letters, some letters can be hard to write at times. There's something on your heart, something of concern, but you know that you need to express it, you need to share it, you need to type it out. And sometimes writing out hard truths, letters like that, it it, it can be difficult for us because we care about the person. We don't want them to, you know, uh, to crush their spirit, that kind of a thing. I, I imagine for James, this is a letter that perhaps was hard to write. I don't know. We don't know. But, but there are some parts that are hard to read <laughs> because the letter is full of challenges. This is a letter that calls us as followers of Christ to holiness, to a standard a spiritual standard of conduct, of purity, of following the Lord and honoring the Lord. And at times, with tough love, I believe that James will write and we will encounter some, some stinging rebukes along the way, some things that will be hard to hear. There will be with that coupled a call to repentance. What do we do in light of that? And, and we'll be called to to repentance. And it's all written with care and concern, of course, of the heart of the Lord. Again, these are good things because we too need them. As followers of Christ today, we need at times some tough love to hear some hard things, but loving things, but difficult things. We too need at times where someone in love confronts us if we begin to drift, if we begin to be tempted by materialism of the world or whatever it may be, and in love we get challenged to say, hey, you're wandering. Confirmation that God is still at work. See, this letter isn't 
necessarily written for evangelism. I won't necessarily see an expression or a presentation of the gospel in itself. It, and I, I would even say it's not necessarily uh, doctrinal or, or theological in its intention of writing. Certainly it's doctrinal and it's theological, but it, it's mostly practical. It's an instructions, it's, it's imperatives, it's challenges that James will put forth to his readers. We might boil it all down to simply this for you and for me, the reader, to examine our own lives, to take inventory of your actions and your attitudes, of our daily conduct, of our character, and to examine that and then to look at Christ and say, okay, is there any real change of what I profess to believe and how my life then is displayed? Is there an equal sign between my words and my actions? And if there isn't, if there isn't a real change, then James in love, though very boldly would say, perhaps then you're not really saved. That you would need to examine where you are because genuine faith, as he would claim, will, will be displayed in the things that we do. And he wants the reader to grow in faith, but he also wants them to understand, if you will, true faith in Christ will be evidenced in the fruit of our lives. Someone once said that a true root will produce true fruit. So that's the theme. It's faith on display. It's faith that works. The outline of James, it's five chapters. James writes kind of in a pithy way. It's a, uh, it almost seems as though the topic will change, especially here in chapter 1. But it's very practical. It's very instructional or instructive. In fact, those who count such things say there's at least 55 different commands or imperatives that have been jammed into 108 verses. And the main charge of this epistle if there's one main theme or one main verse that we can pull out from it, I, I would present to you that perhaps it's chapter 1, verse 22, where James says, let's not just be hearers of the Word of God, but let's be doers of the Word of God. The book of James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. So there are five chapters. Faith is discussed and explored and expounded and unpacked in every chapter. In chapter 1, it's faith through trials and temptations. In chapter 2, it's going to be faith of how it, it plays into our, our daily interactions it, in terms of discriminations and favoritism. And so James will talk about that. In chapter 3, we'll see where faith has a place in, uh, in our words of how we control the things that we say and the power of our speech and our words. He'll also explore the idea of how faith provides a way for us to gain wisdom. Excuse me, and then chapter 4, where faith produces humility for us to walk in, in a humble way before the Lord. And lastly, in chapter 5, how faith impacts our future. 
and also our family and relationships. And so it outlines pretty simply. It all has to do with faith in various ways. And so with that, let's just jump in and we'll explore then the author and the audience because they're found within our first verse as well. James verse 1, that first part where he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, the very first word, it's James. He's introducing himself. In the New Testament, there are four different men named James that we read about. Two of them were disciples. They were disciples of the Lord. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. Mark chapter 15, verse 40 gives him his nickname. He is called James the Less. And the other James is James, the brother of John. And we know them as the sons of thunder. They were seemingly kind of rough and tumble boys. Maybe you can relate as parents to your own kids or boys, or maybe that describes you. And so tradition calls him James the Great or the Greater. So of the disciples, you have James the Less or the Lesser, and you have James the Great. I imagine the guys just called them Little Jim and Big Jim. And then you have James, the author of this particular letter. And what do we know? What does tradition and Bible scholars tell us about this particular James? This particular James was the younger half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, Matthew names the siblings. And Jesus came from a blended family. They all had the same mom. Of course, Jesus' father was God the Father. But James and the others that are named, at least four of the brothers of Jesus are named. We read he had at least two sisters as well. And so these are his half-siblings, share the same mom, Mary, but of course Jesus was miraculously conceived of a, birth, a virgin birth. And for James and the others, it seems most likely that their dad was Joseph, that Mary and Joseph would go on to have other children in the family. Um, and so this is that James, he's the half-brother of Jesus. One of my favorite Christian comedians, uh, Michael Jr., has this little bit on James. I posted on my Facebook page. Uh, but he asked this question in one of his bits. He says, did you know that Jesus had a little brother? His name was James. And he has this kind of funny dialogue where he says, uh, I wonder if his parents didn't say to James, why can't you be more like Jesus? You know? Or uh, he said, I, I imagine James being that little brother that just followed his big brother around everywhere. The, Probably wherever Jesus went, James went, and then he adds, I bet one time James almost drowned too, you know, so kind of funny. So James is the half-brother of Jesus. What we also know from church history and other parts where we meet James through the book of Acts in different places that uh, it seems as though James did not come to faith in his own half-brother. He didn't come to a believing, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ until after the resurrection, which is really interesting to me. 
The Bible says that James had seen the risen Lord with his own eyes. That Jesus made a a special, it seems, uh, specific visit to James. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. But prior to that, prior to James seeing the risen Savior, his own brother, that James and his brothers, his siblings, didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And to me, that's fascinating to ponder. We're not given a whole lot about what they thought, just that they, his own family didn't believe. Not until later. And so there's a part that is curious to me, and there's also a part that's comforting to me. And the comforting part to me is that, wow, even the Lord's own family in this season didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And, and we have family who don't believe in the Lord yet. And God's working on them, and we still pray for them, and we want to continue to do that. And of course, we believe that Jesus wants to reveal the truth of the resurrection to uh, our family and our friends, just as he did to his own family members. And so this James is the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't come to faith until after the resurrection. The other thing we know about this particular James is that he is the He's the main pastor, if you will, or the main leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul, writing about his interaction with this James in Acts chapter 12, calls him the pillar of the church and refers to him as the Lord's brother in Galatians chapter 1 verse 19. And so, Again, it's an interesting thought to me. It's an amazing thought to me. The truth of the resurrection, the grace of Jesus in James's life transformed this skeptic, this denier, a person who was close but still far, And so the resurrection, the grace of Jesus transformed him. And all of a sudden he becomes a leader. He becomes an influential figure. Eventually he becomes a martyr in the cause of Christ. You know, history and tradition say that James was such a a devout man of prayer, so much so that his knees had become severely calloused like that of a camel and so even had a nickname old camel knees what makes all of this more interesting if we have this background now we know who james is what makes it more interesting is notice how he then introduces himself though james a bondservant of god and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James does not mention anything that I told you just now. He doesn't identify himself as the half-brother of Jesus. 
He doesn't come out and say, hey, you guys know me. I'm the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. I'm the pillar that Paul refers to. You know, most times when we are introducing ourselves, it's usually by a point of reference of who we are to a family member, or it's a point of reference of our position, our job, our titles, our work. Point of reference to our family. You know, some of you are known as uh, so-and-so's mom or dad. And some of you are known just by your, your rank and your last name. Right? There are people in your life that you go, they don't even know your first name. They just know your last name. And they know your rank and your job. Maybe at this time there's no need to specify which James is writing. That maybe no one's reading this and wondering, which James wrote this? Was it James the Less? Was it James the Great? His other nicknames is James the Just. Maybe everybody already knew. It's not like in our church when we say, oh, go talk to Josh. There's like 25 Joshes in our church. You gotta, which one? And then you can't just say the bearded one. That just cuts it in half, right? And so, James, which James? The tall James? The short, stocky James with the lazy eye. Which James? Oh, camel knees James. Oh, that James. He, he doesn't choose to identify himself by his position in Jerusalem or by his relationship, well, not his earthly relationship to his brother. James chooses to identify himself in the most humblest of ways and the most humblest of titles, he says, James, a bondservant. And later on, we're going to hear James say much about humility and the need of humility, how we should humble ourselves before the Lord. But here we realize, oh, he's practicing what he will preach later, to call himself a bondservant. That, that, that word can be translated just simply as slave. In the Greek, it's the word doulos. James saying, uh, James, a slave a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was a person that had tremendous influence. He was a person that had a, a high position. He probably had his own designated parking spot for his donkey right there, you know, near the Jerusalem church. James, we know from the book of Acts, would be the one that would make the decisions. His wisdom, his words had a lot of weight. They would take some problems to him and he would weigh in on that and he would say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Uh, he set forth policy and practice for the early church. He was respected for his wise counsel and his godliness, his leadership. And yet of all of the roles and all of the titles, he chooses to be known by this. I am a servant. I am a slave. I am the doulos of God and of Jesus. King, it's a great example for us, perhaps even a challenge for us, of all of the titles and all of the roles, of all of your designations and distinctions that you may hold. Here's a title that should rise above them all. 
that you are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. See, in those days and in today, the world's view of a servant is not an elevated one. Servants were regarded as nobodies. They were regarded as a property. It was the people in charge that had you know, notoriety and respect. It's no different today. It's often the CEOs and the presidents. It's those who are in charge. That's who we look to. Or that, that's who often we, we, we want to emulate and esteem. You're like, wow, look at them, how much they have achieved and who they are. And don't get me wrong, the Bible says we're to you know, give respect to whom respect is due. But the world's view is, is that way, automatically. And the world's view of servants, well, it's the opposite. It is a low view. And yet James takes that role. He takes that title. He identifies himself that way. And of course, that's exactly what his brother did. That's exactly what Jesus was like. Jesus came and said, I, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. There in the upper room, where Jesus says, hey, I'm, I'm your right, I'm your teacher. I'm your mentor. But you remember that he, we're told that he laid aside his garments, he girded himself with a towel, he bent down, and he washed the disciples' feet. That was the job of the lowest house slave. And yet he took that on. And even some of the disciples, and Peter especially, was like, hey, what are you doing? no. Remember the Lord said, no, you need to let me do this. And then he addresses all of them and he says, my paraphrase, hey gang, listen, if, I, if I'm your teacher, if I'm your Lord, and I am, and yet I've done this for you, then you should do the same. I've given you an example that you should follow. And then he adds this, and blessed are you if you know it and you do it. And that's exactly the theme of James. Blessed are we if we hear these things, but then do these things. And so right off the bat, as we make an introduction, a question can be that we ask ourselves, are, are we servants? Are we willing to be known by that title? To call ourselves slaves or bond slaves or bond servants of God, even above our earthly titles? Or is that something that we're repulsed by? Or that we think, oh, that's below me. Someone once said, uh, you'll know that you're a servant when someone treats you like one. And so I'd add this, just as we consider James and who he is and the title that he adopts, that above all other titles and roles, let's be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God might have blessed you. You're, you are in charge at work. You have responsibility. You're the coach. You're the mom. You're the expert. Or maybe you're the student. You're the hardworking bee. You're the homekeeper. You're between jobs. And all of those things, you are a servant of God. That's what you are. And I pray that we would grab a hold of that and realize, yes, that's what I am. That's what I am in my house. And that's what I am 
at school, and that's what I am at the shop, and that's what I am at the office, and that's what I am in my classroom. That you and I are servants of God. James says, I'm a bondservant of God, and then notice he says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus today, we we share a a pattern of, of work. We are called to serve. But we also have a shared pattern of, well, not pattern, maybe a focal point of worship. Unto whom do we serve? And unto whom do we worship? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our faith in Jesus Christ that defines then our shared relationships and our shared roles. And James recognizes that. Who we are and what we do, it's defined then by who the Lord is. And even for James, although he had this very unique relationship to Jesus prior, but for him it began with the correct confession of who Jesus was in his life. And so even for him, he calls his own half-brother the Lord Jesus Christ. His Lord Jesus Christ. And and by the way, I think you know this, that, that Lord and Christ are not the proper names of Jesus. It's not as though Christ is his last name. Like It's Jesus Christ and James Christ. Lord is a, a title. It's a title of honor and of reverence. It's, it's akin to God, to Yahweh, Adonai, Kyrios, the Greek transliteration of Lord, Adonai. And so in context, what we understand is that James himself is acknowledging the deity of Christ, of Jesus, that that Jesus is, was, and is God. You remember there in the upper room, the first time Jesus appears, Thomas is missing. The next week on Sunday, Jesus appears again, and then Thomas is there. The guys had found him during the week and said, hey, you ditched church, you missed it, the Lord showed up, it was awesome. Thomas and his doubts, like, ah, I don't believe it. I want to see it from my own eyes. I want to touch it for my, with my own hands. I love that whole thing. I feel like that, that's, that's my personality too. The Lord wasn't afraid of his doubts or his questions. In many ways, he, when he shows up, he's like, all right, Thomas, bring it. Go ahead. You remember when Thomas does? He cries out, my Lord and my God. It begins here to confess Jesus as our Lord and our God. And so James did. Even though he had a, if you will, a different and unique relationship with Jesus prior, he come to realize, oh, he is my Lord and my God. Of course, Jesus is his proper name. It's also a descriptor of of his character, of his mission, of his purpose. As we read it in the English, it's a transliteration from Yeshua. Sometimes it's translated as Joshua. Sorry, it's like 
25 Joshua's in our church. And his name just means God is salvation or God saves. Gabriel, the angel, had come to Joseph and told him, Joseph, uh, Mary's going to have a baby. Don't get freaked out. It's all good, by paraphrase. She didn't mess up on you. But this is going to be a special baby. The Holy One has come upon her. She's going to give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save many from their sins. Matthew 1.21. By the way, you know, sometimes people get hung up on, on what they consider the proper pronunciation of the name of Jesus. And if I can, just in my opinion real quick, I, to me it's a silly argument. Jesus is just the English transliteration of Yeshua, Yahshua. And if someone wants to call him Yeshua or Yahshua, that's okay, praise the Lord. But to me it's no different than uh, in Japanese, they call him Yesu. In Spanish, it's Jesus. It's just the transliteration. A couple years ago, we had a good brother, Jesus, in our church. I loved when he called me, too, on my iPhone, because it would just say, Jesus is calling. So I was out and about. I'm like, hey, look who's calling me. i got a direct line right here. And, of course, it's Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is Christos. It's taken from the, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. It means anointed one, chosen one. Jesus is the promised one, the chosen one, the anointed one. And so here, James' proper recognition of who Jesus was allowed him to have a proper recognition of who he was. He sees himself in the light of who Jesus is. Gang, uh, you and I, We'll know who we are. We'll really know who we are when we understand who Jesus is. There's a lot of conversation today in our world about identity, whole new terms of identity politics and self-identity and self-identification. And people are denying reality, their own reality how they're fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. The Bible says, male and female, he made them. And they're choosing, people are choosing them to identify as someone else or something else. I imagine it just breaks the heart of the Lord. People are lost and it's sad. But you know, that, that was all of us to one degree or another. The Bible describes us as once being lost. We were once afar off. God loves those people and as much as he loved us and loves us. But we too were once lost and now we're found. It's the Bible then that helps us to realize, ooh, what's my identity? Who am I really? It's the Bible that defines all of that for us. It's God who says, you're mine. I made you. 
I formed and fashioned you. Even when you were in the womb, I knew you. A men's study yesterday, James was teaching through judges and we're looking at Samson and how the angel of the Lord came to Samson's parents and declared him, the baby in your womb, I have a calling on his life. Recognizing that's life, life given by the Lord. And we realize as we read the scriptures that we were made in the image of God. And God desires for us then to come into his family as the family of God, to worship him in spirit and in truth as the Father. And we get to serve him by serving one another. We get to come into the same identity to realize that we are bond servants in love. That that term in the gospel of slave, of what it once meant, or even what it means today, the connotation of that and the, and the meaning of that. In the world, it's a horrible thing. There are groups and organizations, are rightly so, that, that are fighting against human trafficking and, and modern slavery. And yet the gospel takes that term and it, and it, and it makes it into something very beautiful. We're not coerced. We're not forced. No, it, we're chosen. And by faith, we get to serve out of love. And it's the Bible that, does, and the gospel that then reveals who we are in the Lord. We're chosen and we're adopted from the foundations of the world. You are his beloved. You are his kids. You're the apple of his eye. You are his delight the Bible says. And all of these amazing descriptors were co-heirs with Christ. We're we're citizens of heaven. We're a new creation. You've been redeemed, renewed, rescued. Colossians says we're rooted and grounded in Jesus. The Bible says of you that you are forgiven forever. You are free you are forever kept by the Spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit till the, for the promise of the Father. I mean, all of these amazing things that define who we are, and we realize that, we come to understand that after we understand who Christ is and all that the Lord has done for us. And so James then doesn't come off and say, I'm the half-brother, I'm the leader. He says, I'm the bondservant. I serve the Lord and I serve my Savior. He recognized who Christ is. So that's the author. Here's the audience to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. It's an interesting term. Notice he's not necessarily writing to a particular region, like Paul would write to the churches or church in Galatia or the Corinthians. It's just the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. In the Old Testament times, God chose a nation, defined them by 12 peoples, 12 tribes, his own special people. They were the Jewish people. Now in New Testament times, the people of God are made up of all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile. 
who've come to faith in Christ regardless of nationality, ethnicity, gender, right? There's therefore now there's no more uh, Greek or Jew or barbarian and Scythian, poor or rich. That wall's been knocked down. We, we all come the same way through Christ, in faith in him, by God's grace. And yet James is writing to these 12 tribes. I suggest it's primarily it's a primarily Jewish audience. It seems that it is true that's an early letter. The gospel hasn't gone far out yet. It started in Jerusalem. That's where it began. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. And so it makes sense then James, if it's an early letter, letter that's who he's writing to, that primarily Jewish. specifically Christian. We call them Messianic Jews today. And that term, 12 tribes, it, it's an all-inclusive term for just the Jewish people. Notice it, he says they're scattered abroad. They're living in different regions and countries due to persecution of the Jewish people. It's still the result of 500 years earlier when Nebuchadnezzar came through captured Jerusalem, enslaved the people, and scattered all over you know, Asia Minor and that part of the Middle East and throughout history. And it will happen again when the Romans come. And so James uses that title, and we're going to see him, again, part of the, his writing, it's Old Testament vocabulary and vernacular as he will get some points across to him. And if this is the earliest letter, again, it makes sense that the majority of the church at this time consisted mostly of, of Jews who came to faith in Christ. But here's the thing. While we understand, and it's good to understand the background, when he's writing, to whom he's writing, who's our author, there's an original audience, and it meant something for them. It's part of good Bible study. But we also understand that why we study it, why we have it today, why we read it, is that there's still principles and practices that apply to us today that we can live out. And as I mentioned, James is very practical. He's going to equip us to walk in faith in our difficult world today. And so that's who he addresses. Rightly so, we can include ourselves in that, if you will. And then he just says, Greetings. James keeps it short and sweet. From here, he's going to launch into a variety of topics. And it's going to seem almost frenetic, moving from topic to topic, especially in chapter 1. But what I'll mention next week is that I'll suggest that chapter 1 is almost like a table of contents. He's going to hit some things a little bit quick, but later on he'll come back to it and develop it. And so we'll move from trials and faith and favoritism, being tempted, and he just just keeps it short and sweet. But he comes out he comes out quickly. You ever watch a pro boxing match, professional boxing? 
usually, not always, but usually when the bell rings, the boxers come out of their corner. And if you didn't really understand what it was, you'd think, that's kind of a weird thing. They're kind of just dancing, right? <laughs> it's like a little bit of a dance when they first, like, all right, look at those guys, they're dancing. Until they start hitting each other, right? It's a little different than when you've ever watched a, an MMA fight and all the variations of MMA, the different groups. Sometimes they do that, but oftentimes, at least the ones that I've watched, the fighter will, as soon as the bell or the thing rings, they'll, they'll shoot straight out quick and strong from their corner. And sometimes it's like a flying you know, knee knockout, or sometimes it's a flying punch in the face. I think part of it's this combat tactic uh, shock and awe, just overwhelmed by force, quickly and aggressively. That's how James starts. He wants direct contact. It's a flying punch in your faith. <laughs> Not your face, but... He, he starts this way, and he's going to keep this pace throughout the entire book. It's... 55 imperatives, declare, you know, just things for us to do in 108 verses. And it's really not a lot of small talk. He just says who he is, addresses his audience, greetings, and he gets to it. He's not sitting around, you know, eating toast. Good toast. He, he's, he's the, so anyways, let's get down to the nitty gritty. That's, that's his approach, right? He wastes no time getting to it, but gang, guess what? We will take time. <laughs> Next week, we'll get to it. So I'm going to pause here. I thought it good for us to get a solid foundation at the start so that we can study with understanding, so that we can then better read and heed and apply those things that we impact in our journey through James.